Welcome to the Young IPA Podcast. I'm James. This is Pete. G'day, folks. It is the 10th of November. This is episode 193. Big show coming up. A lot of US election chat. That's still going on very much so. Uh, we got the Four Corners program from last night, which is making headlines all over the country. Brendan O'Neill on the show, he's going to be talking to us about a couple of articles he wrote about the US election, which are really interesting and good. And we're also going to be talking to him coming back. Uh, Britain has gone back into lockdown. They're just getting their first couple of days under uh, the new lockdown 2.0 the Boris Johnson's been pushing. So we're going to be talking to him about the scene in Britain, what the public reaction is, and basically just why he's going through it. So, Pete, anything you're looking forward to in the show today? Yeah, well, always good to get the great man on the show, Brendan O'Neill. That was a fantastic chat we did last night, so look out for that. And, of course, I don't want to um, spoil it, but you know, the one story we did have out of the US election that everyone needs to know about is the uh, mishap that occurred with a Trump administration press conference which is a lot of things to talk about in that so i won't give it away but that's what i'm looking forward to mate all right that is let's start there because last week when we did the show we wanted to do like a u.s election wrap-up but then it was very much the case that it was still going on it was still live it was still a thing that was happening but a lot is clearer now joe biden is uh now the president-elect basically trump is refusing to concede the election because of claims of electoral fraud Still a whole lot to play out, a lot of court cases to be settled, but it is looking just basically set in stone that Joe Biden is going to be the next president of the United States. And there's a lot to talk about with that. So, Pete, where do you want to start off the chat? Well, let's start off with uh, a thing that I wanted to talk about and what a new Biden government might look like and what the, what they might do. So, obviously, it's, it's hard to know what's going to happen, of course. Um, and there is sort of, um, there is like a small chance, I guess, that Trump could get it overturned in the courts, but that probably won't happen. And, and what we are looking at is what the Biden government will do. Now, it's difficult to know. One of the things we've been talking about over the last week is that they're, um, it, you know, that the Trump still got a massive vote, the second highest vote in US history. Uh, and it was his, his vote amongst minorities increased. The Republicans held the Senate. Um, th- there, is, there is at least, you know, partly an argument for this repudiation of the real most progressive ideas of the Biden administration uh, being repudiated in the election. So it's interesting to see what's going to happen. Maybe he'll be quite an inert president. Um, Personally, I can't really see it not continuing to be polarized and America still to have massive problems when he takes over in January. There's still going to be COVID. There's still going to be China. There's still going to be the economy. Um, So I see this polarization that has characterized American politics continuing over the next four years i don't think biden's the person who can lead them out of that um and it's gonna be i just think we're gonna have a lot to talk about for the next four years james what do you think yeah so if you look at joe biden's list of executive orders that he's gonna do basically you know the first day in the office kind of stuff there's uh Rejoining the Paris Climate Accord, there's rejoining the World Health Organization, uh, repealing travel ban for many Muslim countries. So they're the three main things. I mean, uh, I like one of those three, obviously. Uh, Another one is going to overturn the ban on critical race theory being taught in the federal government. So that is a bit concerning and it does speak to what you just mentioned of uh, divisions aren't going away in society and the idea that America is like fundamentally and structurally racist is still going to be taught and is still going to be put in schools. Whether or not people are tuning in and or out of that kind of talk is something we're going to be talking to with Brendan later in the show, so I don't want to step over that too much. Uh, but yeah, and then, like, this is 
the thing, if, if you were barracking for Trump and if you were barracking for the Republicans or you are a bit cautious about maybe some of, like maybe not Joe Biden, but the people that come with Joe Biden, there is the fact that, as you say, Republicans are controlling the Senate. So they might be able to, like, they will be able to push back against some of the big fears, like just packing the Supreme Court full of people uh, that vote Democrats, sorry, that um, things just go their way for decades to come, which... You know, then the Republicans get in and they pack the courts and then eventually, like, 50 years from now, we have 3,000 Supreme Court justices. So that's probably not going to happen. But the Senate might not be able to stand up to critical race theory and might not be stand up to a few of the cultural things. But it could have been, like, what I'm saying is it could have been a lot worse. The Democrats also got the Senate, which they were expecting to, and if they did a lot better in the House than they actually did, which, again, they were expecting to... It really could have been four years of just Joe Biden getting through anything he wants, and that does seem to have been pushed back. One thing that really summed it up for me, James, was that when he made that speech, and this is this gets to the crux of why I probably would have voted Trump if I was American. He gave this speech where he was like, you know, I'm not, I ran as a Democrat, but I'm a president. I'm now going to be a president for all Americans. And that's very presidential, lovely thing to say. That's what we expect the president to say. But then I think he also said on the same day, we're going to re-enter the Paris Climate Agreement, which is going to have a negligible impact on the economy. Sorry, a negligible, negligible impact on the environment. Um, but be bad for the economy and be bad specifically for the top kind of people that voted for Trump. So I guess it's that policy versus being a good bloke thing, which I um, which I found, found hard to balance up. Well, actually, I didn't find hard to balance up over the course of the election campaign. I obviously think policy is just so much more important than making nice speeches, as I've said many times on this podcast. Anyway, James, that's the Biden government. What do you I'll think stick on, about- Actually, if I could keep going. So there's also the fear okay. because basically Joe Biden is uh, one of the four oldest men in the world. And there is like the idea that he's not going to be there for the full four-year term that Kamala Harris is due to take over within 48 hours by some reports. So there's obviously a lot of attention on her. And I don't know, I'm seeing a lot of criticism of her going like, oh, she's the face of the far left. She's going to be the person to bring on all of these, uh, you know, very dangerous policies. Like, was I the only one watching the Democratic primary races? Like, she was running as Democrat right. She was blasted as being basically just a cop in a politician's suit. I didn't get the impression she was... I mean, I now know that she has her pronouns in her Twitter bio. So if you ever did want to just double check whether or not Kamala Harris was she, her, just go to her Twitter. She'll tell you... She'll set you right in the path. But I don't see her as like, oh, she's Bernie Sanders, but slightly different. Like, I, I did not get that impression at any point in the campaign. No, I don't I don't think she's that at all. I mean, looking at... looking. You know, at her record, if you look at GovTrack, which is an independent nonpartisan website, they list her as the most liberal of all 100 senators. The New York Times labels her as a pragmatic moderate and Fox News calls her a radical. Now, what that tells me, James, is that she just kind of does whatever she needs to do to survive. And you can see that throughout that, her that's, career. Wait, a politician doing whatever it takes to get reelected? Ben, Unbelievably. Wash your mouth. Wash your mouth. Politicians want to be a people too, James, and they just want to be loved. And she, throughout her career, you can see it with, with when she was an AG. I think she said, yeah, no, so for the for as vice president, she's in favour of marijuana legalisation, but she she wasn't when she was AG of California or whatever it was. Uh, she put a very high number of cannabis users behind bars. Yeah, um, like that famous Tulsi Gabbard uh, moment at the. Uh, Democratic primary debate where she went suicide vest. Take I'm taking Kamala down Harris with uh, Kamala Harris down with me. Here's everything bad she did on criminal justice. Yeah, 
Yeah, exactly right. And the death penalty, she's been on both sides of that. And, and even with regards to obviously a massive issue is how criminal justice, as you just mentioned, that she's been on both sides of that. So yeah, to me, she just does, um, she just does whatever she needs to survive. And, you know, that's probably why she, partly why she was a safe choice because she can just sort of be everyone to everything to everyone kind of thing, if that makes sense. Yeah. Potentially. So yeah, if she becomes president, I'm not sure what she's going to be like, but um, I guess we'll find out. Yeah, we'll find out in four hours' time. Five. When you, I want to say when five. you said Joe, when you said Joe Biden was one of the four oldest people in the world, I thought you were serious for a second. I went, "Oh my god!" It's called dry this. sarcasm. It's a, it's a, you know, it's a niche comedy form, and it's very yeah. highbrow. People really like it when you're dry and sarcastic. Uh, anyway, okay. what do you make of the, the fact that uh, Donald Trump still hasn't conceded anything and is still tweeting out, "I won, I won, I won." I thought that is irresponsible. I think that he's entitled to have his day in court. You know, there's undoubtedly things that, um, you know, in a massive country like America, there's bound to be some level of uh, some level of malfeasance, and he's entitled to test that in court if he wants. But just to say, I definitely won is um, is like obviously dishonest. But you know, no more dishonest than all the television networks refusing to announce that he won Florida for six weeks because they were trying to influence the vote. So, um, you know, a lot of lying going on, not just not just Donald. Well, just how about like the exact same people that say the US democratic process is, uh, you know, you can't criticise it. Never, never yeah. doubt it for a second, but also 2016 was the fault of the Russians and we need a four-year investigation into it. Like yeah. maybe both sides could be a bit more gracious in defeat. Uh, yeah, I'm with you. Like, there's stories that are coming out about in Arizona people being given sharpies, which immediately uh, make sure that the vote isn't legal. Um, you know, and then there's like reports, who knows if they're true or not, of uh, the dead being big Joe Biden voters. I mean, I kind of also see that as just you vote for someone that shares your values and shares your outlook on life. So if you are dead, you're probably going to lean Joe Biden. Um, but yeah, yeah, that's your, like think- your third one on Joe Biden's age. <laughs> <laughs> Leave him alone, just, mate. Come on. It's good. It's just good stuff. Uh, but like, even if you accept all those stories, I still don't think it makes up for Joe Biden's big leads in both those states. So I think, I think just Biden did win Pennsylvania. Biden did win Michigan and Biden did win Arizona. So, you know, it's it's tough scenes and obviously, yeah, entitled to the Dane court, but yeah, I just don't see it for Trump at the moment. And one one thing is it is healthy to sort of shine a light on all that stuff. Like it is good for the it is ironically good for the health of American democracy, this stuff getting way more publicity than it might have got in the past. Um, so, so think of that, James. Maybe that's mm. Donald Trump's long term aim. It's just the long term health and vitality of American democracy. So the last thing I'm going to say about the US election is I was promised writing. I was told that (laughs) uh, shopkeepers were boarding up their homes because they were scared of a Trump victory. Uh, Sorry, Trump defeat. I was told there'd be white supremacist gangs patrolling the streets. I was told... What else was I told? Uh, That, you know, just all that violence all across America. And you think about if you were to draw a picture of what a situation in which there would be writing for Trump would be, I couldn't draw you a better picture than he's leading the entire night until votes are found at 4am, which pushed Biden over the top. Like, you would have thought that would have been the tinderbox to set everything off. Hmm. Where are my rights? Oh, we've been shortchanged, James. No, that was always such a horrendous, rubbish talking point from the side of politics that were vastly less inclined to condemn, you know, actual riots going on for months and months in US cities from from people that were, you know, it's fair to say they're left-wing, whether or not they actually voted for Joe Biden is open to question. But 
they, you know, from that side of politics, and they were very, very uh, reticent to condemn them. They didn't say, oh, you know, there's going to be absolute chaos when Trump, you know, if Trump loses. As we mentioned, I think last week, maybe the week before, they all blur together, James. The, um, the shopkeepers boarding up their shops were not doing it for, for Trump supporters. They were doing it for in, in New York and Washington for people who were upset that Trump didn't win. Yeah, uh, I'm not saying also- there hasn't been some bad stories. I mean, there was one guy that went to a polling district with a gun, so obviously that is not a thing that should happen, But and that guy should be in jail. But, um, yeah, we were, like, we were told it was going to be much, much worse than what it was. Yeah, there's, and obviously touch wood that that doesn't happen. But, yes. um, well, yeah. I think like we've passed the point where it would have in a sizable way, but... Yeah, you never know. Let's, the world's crossed. a crazy place, James. Yeah. <laughs> Let's not get too carried away. But no, you're exactly right that that's the thing. And also the thing about him not leaving, like, oh, he's not going to leave. It's a coup. Like when, when he said, made that speech, oh, oh, we actually won. There were people on Twitter, like, not like crazy people, but, you know, reasonably serious people who were like, the coup has started. And it's like, nah, it hasn't. It's like, That's nah, it. it. That's hasn't. all I've got, James. All right, sweet. Anything else on the US election? Nah. No. Oh. Oh. Well, Careful. we sort of talked a little bit about this with um, with Brendan, but I just wanted to say, just get your thoughts on Trumpism without Trump. What happens? Does it yeah, still- so this, this, what I'm kind of thinking is if Trump, you look at states like Georgia where it flipped blue, which was a huge surprise for everyone. But uh, And I know the two Senate races have still got to go on, but it does look like the Republicans are either going to hold one or two of them. I just wonder if maybe a lot of Republicans would have been like, okay, look, I'm, I'm not going to vote for another four years of Trump's Twitter feed, but I'm still trying to make sure that the Democratic far left doesn't take over, so I'm going to vote Republicans in the House or Senate. So, I don't know. Like, there, there was a whole lot of Trump, what Trump did to campaign to people that weren't getting campaigned to and to speak to real Americans and to not be part of the Washington thing that another politician can do without the I'm going to pick fights with Robert De Niro on Twitter and call him punchy, which is like the stuff that, you know, you had to sort of go, you know, it it was part of the whole package, but it didn't have to be, in my view. Well, that's the million, I mean, as we talked about, this is like the the thing that everyone's sort of talking about. Victor Davis Davis Hanson was on Shapiro on Sunday and he was like, he talked about like literally the same, not the exact same example as you, but he would say, you know, look at Twitter and Trump has just picked some fight with some Hollywood actor and you think, oh my God, why are you doing this? But then he'd end up laughing along and he's like, this is the kind of thing that, not people that love, but it's just like that star power and that celebrity status um, and he, which enables him in part and as well as his authenticity and things like that to attract people that would never ever vote for the Republicans and they wouldn't vote for some rich guy who's, you know, so yeah, I mean, who knows? But I don't think, like if, if it's, it's highly likely that Biden only goes four years and it's highly likely that Trump's back Don't again. tempt me. If you're saying making too many old jokes, don't like pause after that statement and I'm just like, wait for me to jump in. Biden's, Biden's really old. Ha <laughs> ha. Um, and yeah, whether it's him or whether it's, whether it's someone like Tucker Carlson, we mentioned that in the interview with Brendan O'Neill. Uh, it's interesting to see who gets those votes in the future. I don't know if the Democrats have got it in them to get those votes. I don't know if the Republicans have got it in them to get those votes. With a, let's just see what happens, eh? There we go. Uh, Peter Gregory, let's see what happens. That's the incisive <laughs> political commentary that people tune in for. All right, I let's don't move think on you to... Need to... 
make silly predictions all the time. Sometimes it's a matter of just laying it out. And, yeah, uh, but it makes good podcasting. All right, let's move on to Four Corners. So this is the big, uh, I mean, a lot of hype for this episode. It was going to be the Australian Parliament's Me Too uh, showdown. And it's leading all papers today. Now, Pete and I missed it live because that was exactly the time that we had to interview Brendan O'Neill, which was, you know, a bit annoying. But uh, all right. So let's break this down. So it's looking at two ministers in the coalition government, uh, Kristen Porter and Alan Tudge, and... Uh, basically their affairs with staff members. Now, there's a whole lot of what's being contested. So, Christian Porter's threatening legal action. So, Pete, uh, I think we'll just start off with something nice and easy. Pete, what exactly do you reckon happened on those nights? <laughs> yeah, I, look, obviously, it's, it's, it's not my place to get into that, um, you know, um, because it's not, not something I know anything about, obviously. But I, for me, this thing is right. Like, obviously, there's there's a difference between sexual harassment and 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 um, that that sort of things and the bonk ban, right? Like the bonk ban, as much as it's funny to say, the bonk ban. It is absurd that in our in our like the coalition bans its ministers from or tells its ministers what relationships it can and can't have. Um, you know, as I said, so that is separate to the to the sexual harassment aspect of it. If the, if can I just jump in on bonk ban? That was a Jump moment in. to me, one of those like uh, na- nature is heal- healing, we are the virus moments of just going like okay. when Sky News talking heads of talking very seriously and using the phrase bonk ban. It was like, <laughs> oh yeah, politics is getting stupid again. It's like when every uh, newscaster had to really seriously say pussy riot for like six months where you're just like, oh, all right, we're returning to normal lives of people being really serious about something that is like on its surface kind of funny. I mean, I, I can't tell me if I'm wrong here, but how is some... F- international comedian not picked up on this this is like some guy in america on a saturday night go guess what happens in australia you know you because orange man bad i mean that's the biggest loser from the u.s elections what are late night talk shows going to do for the next four years they're still he'll still unless they just keep going yeah yeah i think that's what will happen i think he'll still continue to tweet crazy stuff and that's what will happen but this could be your in james with the comedians in america you could send them this bit you know it'll go off just think about it um and just it's just this precedent that your boss can tell you who you can and can't um, have a relationship with and I you know I've got a vested interest in this James my parents met at work and if they worked in the Morrison or or um, Turnbull governments and they followed the rules you the know, world you would be a whole be, lot better you might not be getting my dulcet, my dulcet tones on a Tuesday are they no, that's, that, um, I don't want to live in that world that's exactly right so no but it's absurd it's like it's stupid anyway uh, that's it my, my take but is people like, um, to, sorry you go no, I was going to say, so this gets into the Barnaby Joyce stuff, and we had another one, Gladys Berejiklian, obviously, with, um, the, you know, it's just basically boiling down to how much of the sexual lives of politicians do you want to know, and my answer is a Very flat little. zero. I, I prefer not to think of politicians as sexual beings at all. I think they just go into a room and make policies that I criticise, like, that's, that's the relationship that I like, um, and, you know... Uh, yeah, obviously I'm not going to get into what happened or when, but you think in a city like Canberra where there are that many spies, as Turnbull said on the show, you might not want to be getting yourself in those kind of situations. Not saying that anyone did, but you might not want to be. Uh, but what I also like about this is Malcolm Turnbull got involved with the documentary. He spoke to Four Corners and then was on Q&A immediately afterwards talking about it. And he must have thought he was going to come off as the biggest hero in all of this. The guy that was like, you know what? I set people right. I was the one that told Christian Porter ex- such and such about what ministerial, what ministerial conduct is. But then people pointed out, like, you then went on to make him Attorney General. So, like, what exactly did you solve? 
Yeah, other, if, if, like the guy still got promoted. If you were genuinely concerned, you might not have done that. Um, yeah, it's interesting to see his role in all this. Uh, continues to, I don't know, how would you describe it? Cover himself in glory post-retirement. Yeah, I think that's Malcolm Turnbull. Like, when they were both on Insiders in the worst way to spend a Sunday morning watching Malcolm Turnbull and Kevin Rudd on Insiders. Like, they should actually start their own political party or TV chat show, which is just two exceptionally bitter gentlemen telling about how things would have been different if everyone listened to them. Imagine if... Did anyone tune in? Like, that would... I. You've got to... They, they need intervention. People tuning into Malcolm Turnbull and Kevin Rudd on Insiders need an intervention. That just is that would just suck. As I'm just imagining. Sorry, sorry. I'm just imagining their TV show together. Like, at, at any point, does one of them listen to the other, or is it actually two people talking for sixty minutes straight without break, not even noticing that someone else is in the room talking? I don't know. I don't know if they would. They. It's. I don't know if they even like each other. They like each other because they're both united by a current hatred of people still in parliament. Like, that's their one uniting force. Yep. And, and, and obviously, News Corp. And News Corp. News Corp. And, Kevin, and, yeah, and Rupert Murdoch. Uh, yeah, well... I forgot where we were. I was just on a well, random tangent. I just sort of wanted to make, you know, the, the point that, like, these are people we trust to defend our nation and, you know, fix the economy post-COVID and all this and... We're telling them who they're allowed to have a relationship with. It's, I just want to reiterate how absurd that is, I guess. My last point I want to bring up. Sorry, there was a story that was coming out on the day of that Scott Morrison and maybe some other people in the parliament were trying to make sure that the ABC didn't run this story, which is, you know, it's not great when the government can get on the phone and the ABC can feel pressured into not running a story because that uh, it might long-term affect their funding. So if you're like me, and you don't want stories like this happening, then let me tell you about this beautiful thing called ABC privatisation, where the ABC does not have to give two hoots about whether or not their funding will be affected by running stories like this, because they're not reliant on the government for funding, they're reliant on people tuning in. So if they have a story that's in the public interest and that advertisers are going to want to put uh, their product on to make sure people see it, that's all that needs to happen. We get get too much in it. When we talk about privatising the ABC, we probably don't... Uh, what's the word, accentuate enough that it's actually beneficial for the ABC to privatise themselves. Like, you don't have to pretend to be impartial anymore. Like, I know how painful it is for you guys to, you know, pretend that you're not actually massive lefties. Don't worry about it. If you privatise yourself, you can say whatever you want. Be as left and as you want. Be free of the shackles. Not that many of them have shackled themselves, but if they were to be shackled, you can be free of them. Imagine being able to say what you think, guys. Think about that. And the thing is, it's not like the, oh, the ABC disappears. All it is is a few ads. Yeah. That's it. Same thing over, it's just less content. So less work for you. Um, think about it. All right, that's all I had for uh, this. So should we move on to heroes and villains? I think it's time. This is the Grunt the Pig Freedom Snort for people that are stood up for freedom and uh, justice around the world. So Pete, who is your hero of the week? James, we are a little bit critical of Californians, okay? And... We are critical of Hollywood and we're critical of Californians being full of work and progressive people who don't understand how the world works like we do. So, my, but my hero this week is And their teenagers intimidate me. Like just California teens, they're, they're very cool and it's intimidating. Is that part of it? Am I off, yeah. I'm, I'm off subject. That's, that's probably a little bit off subject, but I mean, I, I do want to explore that for, further once the show ends. Um, what I would say though is my hero is Californians this week because a couple of propositions that... Uh, got voted on in the course of the 
uh, presidential election held last week. Now, obviously, California voted for, um, what's his name, Joe Biden, uh, by a very large amount. However, they voted in favour of Proposition 22, which was put forward by Uber and Lyft, which meant that uh, exempted Uber and Lyft uh, workers from labour laws, which would classify the drivers as employees, which means that they'd have to... Um, They'd have to have all the, the all the things you know. They have to provide all the conditions and all the insurance and things like that that employee that employers normally have to provide their employees with. Now it overturns a landmark law from last year um, about that. And the thing about this is that that's actually a win for workers' rights. They interviewed all these drivers who were saying, "Yeah, this is great. It means I can keep working." Um, you know, they actually did improve their conditions with Uber and Lyft as a result of it. Uh, and it's actually not, see, this gets, like the unions will say, oh, this is bad for unions, uh, for workers' rights, but it's actually good for workers' rights because it gives workers greater freedom and choice. Now, that was not the only one. Proposition 16 wanted to legalize affirmative action in California, uh, which is actually one of the one of the few states in America where affirmative action is um, illegal. Uh, they wanted to legalize affirmative action in California in public sector recruitment. It's been illegal since Proposition 209 in 1996. So propositions everywhere. Uh, the campaign had $31 million to play with to get this proposition up and running, which was to allow affirmative action in public sector recruitment. Uh, and only $1.6 million against, but it still got shellacked, uh, losing 44% to 56%. So, you know, it's it's nice to know that the people of California don't think the answer to discrimination is more discrimination. So, Californians, you're my hero this week. Very good one. My one, fresh off the press. So Joel Fitzgibbon, like five minutes before we started recording this morning, uh, said he was stepping down from shadow cabinet. Um, You want to talk about someone that actually gets energy policy, especially from the Labor side. You don't do better than Joel Fitzgibbon. This is someone that's like repeatedly spoken out about some of these climate targets, not only increasing people's power uh, power bills when they might not be in a position to afford them, but also just costing jobs of people that need jobs in uh, communities and that's going to be a pretty huge loss for Labor you would think they're not going to miss him until the next election when they get absolutely whitewashed but yeah just shout out to Joel Fitzgibbon for being someone uh, willing to stand up for basically traditional Labor values at a time that it's not obviously not profitable because he's now resigned from cabinet ministry so just wanted to do uh, sorry from shadow cabinet uh, so just wanted to shout him out on the podcast. Interesting about that, because I actually clipped Dan Andrews the other day, Joel Fitzgibbon. He said that maybe history won't judge what his lockdown strategy is the most effective. So Yeah, we were doing so well. We, we literally got half an hour into a show without mentioning Dan Andrews. But we, <laughs> damn it. I wanted to see how long we could go. I wanted to see how long we could go. The other thing about Joel Fitzgibbon, James, was that he provided us with that fantastic memory of the live on-air tete-a-tete with uh, Barnaby Joyce, where they both basically got into this random debate uh, about cows farting, I think it was from. from yeah, that was like that was one of those clips where you just get stupider every single time you watch it. So thank you for providing us with that memory. Yeah, it's no way I'll wipe out, which is a shout out to something that's like seven years old, but still it's a precious place in my heart. If you are young, look up why I'll wipe out. My word, that's a funny video. Uh, all right, yep. so should we go into villains? Exactly. Yes, we should. So the Extinction Rebellion fake nudie run villain of the week award, roll the tape, Muskie. As Extinction Rebellion protests enter their sixth day. That's a fake nudie run. So anyone who has acted against liberty or freedom this week gets awarded the Extinction Rebellion fake nudie run villain of the week. James, who is your villain? 
All right, so earlier in the show you said Joe Biden, say election speech was basically about healing the nation, governing for all of America, not seeing America's red and blue states. So it's all really good and exactly what we should be aiming for. Uh, but proof will be in the pudding, and with tweets like this going around, I am quite skeptical. So Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, not a uh, stranger to being in the villain section, tweeted out, Is anyone archiving these Trump sycophants for when they try and downplay or deny their complicity in the future. I foresee decent probability of many deleted tweets writing photos in the future. And then when she was getting cr- rightly criticized for that, lol at the party of personal responsibility being upset at the idea of being responsible for their behavior over the last four years. So basically we're just making lists of political enemies for possible later retribution, which is something that does not go down well in history. That's exactly right. And of course, you know, we talk about, oh, Trump is the cause of all this polarization. It's like, well, Trump's gone now. So if this behavior is going to continue, I guess we'll have to be open to the fact that maybe it wasn't all his fault. All right. My villain, James. Now, my villain is the Met in the UK. So we've touched on this story a little bit, but I'll just give you the, I'll lay it out for you in case you're not familiar. On June 30 this year, Darren Grimes, who's a YouTuber, interviewed British historian Dr. David Starkey. Um, Starkey made comments uh, about... Uh, African people that what happened he lost a range of positions for this uh, resigned or was fired from a number of fellowships and other senior positions along with book deals being cancelled and actually having his Medlicott medal withdrawn now he'd referred he'd said genocide didn't uh, slavery wasn't genocide because uh, (laughs) we say it we want that clip down in the future (laughs) can we get suited anyway you can google what he said if that's not gonna it's um, unfortunate it is uh, not not a good statement Okay, it's not a good statement. Um, anyway, so that happened. So he got he got charged with hate crimes, but also uh, Darren Grimes, the the twenty seven year old YouTuber who was interviewing him, also got interviewed uh, and charged with a hate crime by the police. Uh, so for the reason that he was he he obviously aired the clip, but also didn't challenge him in the interview. So it's sort of not enough to actually be. It, you know, you have to actually openly challenge this stuff uh, to avoid the wrath, the wrath of the police. Um, so he was interviewed by the police on uh, suspicion of stirring up racial hatred. The case was dropped after a backlash from free speech campaigners, James. Uh, and but the thing that occurred this week was that that gets recorded on the National Hate Crimes Database. So they said, in accordance with the Home Office counting rules, this matter remains recorded and as an allegation of hate crimes. So basically this guy worrying about David Starkey is that he's now on this register. Uh, if anyone, you know, if he wants to work as a carer or a teacher, um, they can have access to this database and see that he has been uh, accused of this thing. Uh, when all he did was interview this guy and then put the clip out. Um, so yeah, that's, that's it. That's the story. And for that latest development, and we've talked about this before, how hate crimes in the UK get recorded as, um, you know, like so, any allegation of, of hate crime gets recorded as a as on this list, and then they talk about oh, the list has gone up, even if all the allegations haven't been proven. Anyway, Darren, uh, so UK the Met, you're my villains this week. This is one of the older, like sorry, the more underreported arguments for free speech, which this one speaks to, which is like, don't you want to know what these people are thinking? Like, it, it, yeah. if someone's got these pretty vile views and they might be more prevalent in society than you're comfortable with, don't you want to know about it? Or do you really want to be in a situation where, well, if we even ban people interviewing them, if we ban people speaking to these people, then eventually no one's going to have these opinions. But that's not how opinions work. Like, they need to be challenged. They need to be debated. So if we're going to bury our heads in the sand that they're widespread, like, eventually they're going to be even more widespread because no one's around to challenge them. 
Yeah, exactly right. And, and it's really open to question how much these hate speech laws actually, um, actually, like there's quite the argument to say they're counterproductive. They, they create within people that might, might hold these absurd views uh, the idea that, you know, they're a victim and blah, 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 and they're being restricted by the state. And um, it's far better off just uh, having it open. All right. Uh, speaking of big free speech advocates, we will now go to an interview with Brenda O'Neill. Okay, we're now welcome back onto the show. Someone we absolutely love talking to all the time, Brendan O'Neill, editor of Spiked. Uh, Brendan, welcome back. Hi, guys. So we wanted to talk to you because you had a, a two really fantastic articles about the US election, which people can read uh, at Spiked, and they can also read in the Spectator uh, UK, I think it was, basically talking about uh, how this whole election has been a triumph of the working class people against the elite. So I just want to ask you that first up, like what, how did you form that opinion? Yeah, I think it's the most important story about the American election. I think there are many important stories in this election. Uh, you know, Biden getting a pretty hefty popular vote of 75 million or something. That's really interesting, really impressive. Um, the shifts of different identity groups to voting for Republican, I think that's really interesting too. There's loads of fascinating things going on. I think people will be analysing this election for years to come. But from my perspective, the most important story of this election is that um, more than 70 million people voted for the candidate they were told not to vote for. This is the guy, Donald Trump, who for the past four years, the, the cultural elites, the media... Um, the celebrity set, the social social media world, all these people have been telling us he is evil incarnate. He's basically another Hitler. He's the worst thing to ever happen to Western politics and American politics. He's a fascist, et cetera, et cetera. And yet 70 million people, the second highest electoral block in the history of America after Biden's vote, um, voted for him. They clearly made a rational decision that this man was the one who would best represent their interests. And I'm if you look at the breakdown of the um, exit polls so far, what we know, I mean, this could change, but so far what we know is that Trump attracted a lot of votes from people who did not go to university. He attracted a lot of votes from um, Latinos and working class black men. Um, and I think these are really interesting constituencies because I think what it reveals is that there is a significant section of American society who have not been sucked into the woke worldview, who do not go along with all of those orthodoxies, who do not pay attention to the media, who cannot be told what to do by politically correct sections of society, and who are thinking for themselves. So I think there's actually something, in, whatever you think about Trump and whatever you think about Biden, I think there's something incredibly important, important and um, positive in the fact that so many people voted in a way that they weren't meant to. So, Brendan, one of the things I noticed about stuff you've written over the last couple of days and also the Spike podcast um, that was on uh, a few days ago, you talk about class a lot, which is something that um, other people might not have done as much. You sort of you really hit on that point that um, people are looking after their economic needs and the needs of the community um, around them, almost sort of leaning back into your Marxist days with your, with talking about <laughs> class a lot. And you sort of um, you say, you know, the postmodernists are terrified of this because you know, they, were, they don't want people to think about their class. They want people to think about, you know, their racial identity and stuff like that. Um, is that what's going on here? Is this all a class thing? 
Uh, I think there's a lot of class involved in this. I'm kind of obsessed with class, probably in a way that's not particularly helpful sometimes, but it is the thing I think about most. Um, that's a bit of a British thing. We're, we're obsessed with class in the UK. Um, and I think my view of identity politics is that it is fundamentally about replacing class the class politics of old with a new form of politics that is much more divisive. That's how I've always understood identity politics. I don't think it's a conspiracy. I don't think influential, powerful people sat down somewhere and said, oh, let's push aside class politics and replace it with this. I don't think anything like that happened. I think it probably happened quite organically and um, over a long period of time, the last 30 or 40 years, really. But what we have seen is the um, replacement of a class-based politics with identity-based politics. So in the past, you know, lots of people would have defined themselves by their class, by, by the job that they did, by their economic power, by, you know, where they were on the economic ladder. That's fundamentally how most people thought of themselves politically. Increasingly, what we have today is people think of themselves as, uh, you know, a black person or a, a, a queer Muslim or a transgender person. However they define themselves, that becomes the most fundamental part of their political identity. So there's been a really important shift. And I think one of the things that this election in the US has done, I think it has dealt a bit of a blow to identity politics, um, because a lot of identity groups voted in a supposedly disobedient way. You know, Latinos are not supposed to vote for Trump because he hates Mexicans and he builds the wall, etc. Um, black people are certainly not meant to vote for Trump because he's a white supremacist, as we are told. Um, so they behaved in a way that they weren't meant to. And I think what we are seeing is, and if you look at the analysis of why these people voted for Trump or what they thought was the most important issue in the US, um, the economy and jobs scores much more highly as an important issue among Trump voters than it does among Biden voters. Among Biden voters, there are issues like racism, coronavirus, um, climate change, and so on. Whereas among Trump voters, one of the most important issues for them is the economy and jobs. So I think this was about ordinary people saying, look, we want a, a more cl class-based politics, or at least a politics that talks about economic problems and lack of jobs, uh, lack of gainful employment, the fact that some people are suffering economically. So I, I think partially this election was a reassertion of people's economic interests against the narrow identitarian obsessions of the upper middle classes. And I think that's one reason you know, New York Times columnists, columnists and academics and, and woke people in general, that's one reason they're so angry with the people who voted for Trump, because I think at some level they instinctively recognize that these are ordinary people, many of them uneducated, who are saying, listen, guys, let's talk about the economy rather than obsessing over uh, trans toilets or gender fluidity or Black Lives Matter or cancel culture and all these other things that they think have come too much to the fore in recent years. Let's stay on class for a second, because uh, I remember when 2016 happened, there was the idea that like Trump was able to uh, get so many people from the working class, traditional democratic places. I mean, when Philadelphia and Michigan went over to Trump in 2016, it was such huge news. And then Brexit came on the back of that as well, where you had, uh, you know, a working class British basic uprising against the elites. What's different now four years later? Because it sort of seems like we're hitting on the same themes back then, 2016, as we are now. So are there big differences in how we talk about this? I think there are differences. I think um, 
that what the what the election in America proves is that that populist moment is not going away. Um, it has it, it lost the election, but it has not been roundly defeated. There are still millions and millions of people who prefer uh, a populist ruler who want to shake up politics, who are electing someone who is famously chaotic and and um, you know goes like a. a a bit of a blunderbuss in politics and kind of really self-consciously stirs things up. So there's still lots of people who are willing to vote for the candidate who is more populist, more edgy, some people would say more destructive. So that urge is still out there, that urge for politics to become a bit different, a bit more direct, a bit more democratic. So that hasn't gone away. I think that's really important. In terms of what's changed, I think in in some ways, nothing has changed because people are still not listening to those kinds of voters. And when I hear, you know, well-paid newspaper columnists or academics saying, oh, thank God Biden's won, now we can go back to normal. What they mean by normality is, you know, their nice lives. You know, they, they, live, they tend to live in nice areas. They tend to live in nice apartments. They've got pretty good jobs, pretty good pay. That's normality for them, but normality for many other people is economic insecurity, job loss, the decline of manufacturing, the decline of towns, which goes along with the decline of manufacturing. You know, those are these are significant problems for huge numbers of people, and they want to push them onto the agenda. I think that's what people have been trying to do for the past four or five years. They've been trying to push those issues onto the agenda. Um, with some success, I mean, Donald Trump didn't do a very good job of um, keeping to his promises to those people. That's a serious problem. But with some success, they pushed those onto the agenda. But I think the massive sigh of relief we can hear in chattering class circles over the past couple of days after Biden won is really those sections of society saying, oh, thank God, we can stop pretending to care what rednecks in America think. You know, we don't have to listen to these people anymore. We can stop pretending to care what these uneducated people, uh, you know, these disobedient Latinos, we don't have to care what they think. We can go back to normal and normal for them is life in the echo chamber where it's just their opinions that are heard and no one else's. So in some ways, everything's changed because Trump has caused a massive explosion in Western politics. But in other ways, very little is changing because I think the political elites are far too resistant to listening to those ordinary people's voices and far too keen to cancel them from public debate. We'll get on to uh, the thing about the um, the uh, what happened, how Trumpism survives without Trump in a second. But before we do that, I want to ask: you've mentioned um, so you know you've uh, emphasised the role of uh, economics in this do you think there's also a, a clash of values going on because i i feel like as long as as well as just the economic interests and we know the democrats don't really care about the economic interests of poor people there's also you know patriotism there's the econ there's the there's the value side of the economics thing there's the you know people in uh, working class people in america love capitalism um there's you know a love of liberalism a love of uh, sort of when i say liberalism it's classical liberalism the idea that people should be judged on the, co- uh, the contents of their character not not their uh immutable characteristics. Um, is it a clash of values as well that's taking place at the moment in America? Absolutely, yeah. I think the the, the value clash is really important too. I think the, the economics thing is part of that because I, th- I see the, the economic uprising as a very natural challenge to the values of the political elites, which, are, which people see as being completely out of touch. 
But yes, I think there is a clash of values. I think that's that's becoming increasingly clear. And what we have is, you know, a new establishment, a kind of woke establishment whose values are incredibly different to ordinary people's. Um, there was a survey done in the US a couple of years ago, which found that most people don't like political correctness. Um, they're not, they think there's too much of it. Um, if you look at the word uh, Latino versus the word Latinx, I think that's how you pronounce the word Latinx. It's I've been saying L-A-P- Latinx. Yeah, it's this, it's this weird word that's used by politically correct people, um, L-A-T-I-N-X. And um, there was a survey done asking Latino people if they've used this word, and I think like one or two percent of them use it, and most of them had never even heard of it. I mean, the chasm between these two worlds is extraordinary. And if you look at, um, you know, the New York Times and the Washington Post and and these other drivers and Twitter and so on, you know, these drivers of kind of uh, upper middle class opinion or chattering class opinion, words like Latinx and uh, woman spelt with an X instead of an A and the capitalization of the word black, which I think has become house style now in some newspapers. I mean, these are the concerns of a a very small group of people. These are the concerns of an establishment that is obsessed with language, obsessed with policing language, obsessed with identity, and obsessed with these very narrow issues that most ordinary people don't really care about. Most ordinary people are generally anti-racist, in favor of rights for gay people and trans people, um, as you say, they want to judge people by the content of their character rather than the color of their skin. They don't think in that kind of myopic identitarian way. They don't think in that hyper-racial way. And they don't obsess over the minutiae of identity and and what's offensive and who needs to be cancelled and all those kinds of issues. Um, those things are obsessed over by the social media oligarchs and the academic establishment and the universities. But outside of that, there are millions of people who think that there are other things that are far more important, like the economy, the jobs, uh, the nation, border control, um, all those things I think they would see as being far more important. So there's a huge clash of values between what I would consider to be a pretty decadent establishment and a huge swathe of ordinary people who are basically saying to them, get a grip and do politics properly. Yeah, so we've got a whole lot of people saying Trump's a white supremacist, Trump's a racist, and and yet still Trump doubles his vote among black people, and uh, half of Latino people in Florida voted for him. So it's you know it, it it's not holding the same sway as it did four years ago. But what I think is going to happen is that it's going to be a case of they'll redouble their efforts. They'll say we haven't got the word out hard enough. White supremacy is too far ingrained, and um, what is the phrase? Um, you know, just structural racism is too far ingrained in American society. We can't even convince these people of Trump's white supremacy. Do you reckon this is going to peter out or just overall get worse, This, the way people talk about this stuff? I think in the short term, it's going to get worse. And I think we, we are going to see a doubling down. We are going to... See, I mean, we've already seen it. There's already been a lot of anger from these people in relation to uh, especially Latinos and black people and also... Um, Native Americans and Native Alaskans um, who seem to have voted for Trump in fairly large numbers, there's already a lot of anger at these people for, you know, essentially for being Uncle Toms. I mean, that's really what these people are saying. That's what there was a piece in the New York Times about how um, even 
historically oppressed groups can be sucked in by white supremacy because either because they're scared of it or they want to be part of it. I mean, that's just such deeply paternalistic view of these ethnic minority groups who are more than capable of thinking for themselves and more than capable of working out what their political and economic interests are. So we're already seeing that kind of neo-racist fury with those sections of society who are seen as being essentially as racial traitors, you know, traitors to their race. That's how they're understood. That used to be an idea that would be more popular on the hard right and, and the racist right. Now it's something that you hear from the kind of woke left. So um, I think there will be a doubling down. I think there will, uh, it's possible, I think they will even be emboldened by um, uh, Biden and uh, Harris being in the White House because Biden and Harris have the you know the correct views on lots of these identitarian issues they're also quite anti-populist um they're anti-brexit they're pro-european union they're a bit technocratic so i think a lot of the woke elites who've been on the back foot over the past four years because of trump and because of brexit i think they will now feel emboldened to push even harder so in terms of that clash of values i think that's going to become even more intense and i think there will be a regrouping among a kind of um, woke establishment who will say, right, we've really got to do, go all out to impose our way of thinking on the rest of society. And I think there will be a counter attack probably by large numbers of ordinary people who will be looking for a new politician who can represent what they think is important. Well, that's interesting. Let's get on to that new politician. So so we say that the, um, the, the woke uh, elites won't give up, won't give up the fight. Where do these people find a home politically? Because we see two elections in a row, this massive constituency, we've seen it with Brexit, we've seen it to a smaller extent in Australia. I feel like, I don't know if the Republicans have the guy or the woman who's going to get, you know, an auto worker, to, you know, a retired auto worker to vote for them. Um, I feel like that was, that was Trump and I, I'm not really sure where those people are going to go next. Do you think that there is someone in the Republican Party that can accommodate them? Do you think the Democrats will try and accommodate them? Or do you think Trump will just come back and we'll keep going with the whole thing? Yeah, I mean, that's it's a really important question and I don't I don't know the answer to it, but I do wonder often where that politician will come from. I mean, Trump in many ways was an accident. He, he kind of was in the right place at the right time and he became, I think Tucker Carlson described it really well last week where he said Trump, people love Trump and they love him not because they think he's perfect, not because they think he's even necessarily a good politician but because he took them seriously. And he had these vast rallies across America, even during the COVID pandemic, he had these vast rallies in which he engaged with thousands upon thousands of people. Um, and he listened to them and he went to these forgotten towns and met with thousands and thousands of people. I think that in itself was incredibly powerful. Um, and that's why people were very pro-Trump. And you know, the democratic establishment doesn't do that. It does you know, Joe Biden hid in his basement for the past three months. And, you know, when they do go out, it's always very spun and very, you know, carefully selected groups and ex incredibly professional and so on. So they don't engage with people in the same way. Some politician has to start doing that. I don't think, I can't think of anyone in the Republican Party who would be up for doing that. I could be wrong. I think there are lots of thinkers in America on the right and the left who are arguing for this new form of politics. Um, Michael Lind, I think, is really interesting on this. Thomas Frank. Um, there are some voices who are saying, listen, we need to take populism seriously because it's not 
a racist, crazy movement. It's a really important movement by ordinary people saying we need to make politics better. I think there are some interesting people in the Democrats. Um, Tulsi Gabbard, I think, is a really interesting politician. Andrew Yang, I think, has got lots going for him too. Obviously, both of those um, put themselves forward as the Democratic presidential candidate. What those guys will do will be interesting too, because I think those two in particular are evidence that in the Democrat Democratic Party, there are people, particularly Gabbard, but also Yang to a certain extent, there are people who are aware that they've become this kind of elitist machine, completely out of touch with ordinary people. Um, and they understand why Trump happened. They understand that Trump happened largely because the establishment failed ordinary people. So whether those kinds of people can come to the fore in the Democratic Party and push aside the kind of irritating lefties in the squad and also the boring establishment represented by Clinton and Biden, if, they, if those younger, much more sussed people can come forward, you know, the Democratic Party could re-energize itself too. The question is whether there are similar voices in the Republican Party who can maintain Trumpism post-Trump. Yeah, I was very happy with um, Andrew Yang's comments on the night of the election where he didn't drink the Kool-Aid of victory at all. He said, this is a huge problem. We should have won by a lot more. And it just shows how much we're losing the working class. And I think you've mentioned the person I'm looking for in four years' time. I think it's going to be Tucker Carlson himself. That's my yeah. four years out call. So we'll see how that goes. Uh, I was I just thinking that. Yeah, I, all right. I, I want to switch lanes for a second. So you're coming to us live from London, who are just going into lockdown 2.0, which Pete and I are coming out of here in Victoria. Uh, now, it's not being greeted very happily by people in the UK. So why is Boris Johnson locking down again? I just don't know. I don't understand what he's doing. I think he's lost his mind. Um, you know, the first lockdown we had, we had a lockdown that started at the end of March which he told us would last for three weeks. And he told us it had one aim and one aim only, which was to prevent the NHS from being overwhelmed by new COVID cases. Most people accepted that. They went along with it for th uh, three weeks, four weeks, but it, last it ended up lasting for three months. It went on and on and on, and it was completely and utterly disastrous. It's had a, a terrible impact on our economy. We're heading for the worst recession on record. Thousands and thousands of people have lost their jobs. Um, huge numbers of businesses have gone out of business. And there's been a massive health impact too, because the NHS basically went from being a national health service to being a national COVID service. It really only attended to COVID or it became obsessed with COVID, which meant that lots of um, new cancers were not diagnosed. Um, cancer treatment was cancelled in some instances. There are now predictions that there will be a huge number of deaths from cancers in the coming months because of the failure of the NHS to treat all patients. There's also been a rising number of people dying from heart attacks and strokes at home, um, presumably because we were told constantly every day on TV adverts and billboards on the streets, um, you know, protect the NHS, basically leave the NHS alone, don't go to hospital, don't go to a doctor. So not surprisingly, there was a spike in the number of people dying from um, stroke and heart, heart attacks in their houses. So it had a terrible impact economically, in terms of health, um, and in terms of people's mental health as well. Um, and once it, once it was over, there was a huge sigh of relief. People were very pleased. And of course, COVID-19 came back, right, which was really predictable because loads and loads of young people went to university 
And that's where some of the spikes have been in university cities like Liverpool and Manchester, which have a huge university population. Um, and there was a spike in other areas too, but the spike was not accompanied by a massive rise in hospitalizations of, or deaths, certainly not in comparison with what we saw in March and April when there were huge numbers of deaths in the UK. So the second lockdown makes no sense to me. And the fact that the government has had to use really dodgy statistics to promote the second lockdown. For example, the day before the lockdown was, a few days before the lockdown was enforced, the government had a press conference in which they said, one of our predictions is that if we don't lock down, 4,000 people a day will die. Now, that's complete bullshit, if I may say so, because 4,000 people a day haven't died in any country on earth from COVID, including in far larger countries than Britain. So it just didn't make sense. And, and it since has turned out that that study was old. It was based on um, outdated figures and it has been completely rubbished. And yeah, it now looks didn't like even happen. It, those numbers didn't even happen in Italy when we didn't even know what it was, like when just it was running rampant. Yeah, but e even in the US and Brazil, which are huge countries with much larger populations than Britain, there was nowhere near 4,000 deaths a day. So that was complete bunkum. And what it, it now seems that, uh, according to some experts, they think that the number of COVID cases had already started to plateau or decline before the second lockdown. So if it turns out that this four-week lockdown was unnecessary, I think people are going to be really, really angry. And in fact, Many people already are angry, and we've seen big protests in London and Manchester with people saying, we don't want this lockdown. And so this time around, the government is not going to get an easy ride. So we were just talking about this constituency in the US that Trump keyed into. You could sort of make the argument that that's something that Johnson keyed into as well in the last general election in Britain, um, where he got all those votes in the North that they'd never got before or they hadn't got for centuries. Um, is is him making this decision, which is no doubt pleases the people that can work at home, no doubt pleases the technocratic elite, no doubt pleases the bureaucracy. Is him making this decision, him uh, not really serving that constituency and sort of showing that that was maybe a little bit lucky and it wasn't like he'd sort of keyed into something? Um, and, and, and is he going to be punished for that later on, for the fact that he sort of put these people not first? As yeah, I think, that's, I think that's a distinct possibility. And... Um, you know, the big Boris phenomenon in, in, in our general election last December was, of course, that he won all the seats in the Red Wall. So the Red Wall is this area that runs through a bit of Wales and the Midlands and the north of England. And these are seats that have been Labour seats for 100 years. I mean, they virtually never vote Tory, some of them. And Boris Johnson won loads and loads of them. I mean, the vast majority of them. That's why he got such a historic... Um, unprecedented democratic mandate and he won those of course because he said he would do he would get brexit done and many of these working class parts of the country are very very pro brexit so he won those people's votes but now a lot of those people are angry and um a lot of them are losing their jobs a lot of them are seeing their high street uh, falling apart many high streets in the country won't recover after the lockdowns because some shops and small businesses you know, I'm sure big corporations can shut down for three months, but there are many shops and pubs and small businesses that cannot do that. And they will have just signed off their business because they don't have the cash to exist for three months. Um, so a lot of high streets are going to collapse. A lot of people are going to lose work. 
there's a real sense of anger in some of those areas that were very supportive of Boris Johnson. And recent opinion polls do show a bit of a shift towards Labour, not a massive one, but a bit of a shift, um, which is ironic because Labour would lock down even harder. So I don't think that's the solution. Labour is in favour of um, locking down for longer and for harder. So I think Boris is in trouble and I think he probably knows he's in trouble. I think someone in government has to get a grip. Someone has to say, listen, um, we know this is a serious virus. You know, people like me who are skeptical of lockdowns were often accused of either not taking COVID-19 seriously or just wanting it to run riot through the population. That's not what we're saying at all. We know it's a serious virus. We know it has a high fatality rate among older people, especially people in their 80s. And we know that there, you know, some precautions will have to be taken in order to protect those vulnerable communities. Um, care homes should be better protected. Older people, I think, should be given advice to how to, on how to shield voluntarily if they want to. And similarly with people with underlying conditions. But my view is that the rest of society, healthy people, working people, should be able to get on pretty much as normal, go to work, socialize, um, keep the economy going, keep their lives going. I think this constant in and out of lockdown is a disaster. And if the government doesn't realize it during this second lockdown, if we have a third one, then I think the UK is in serious, serious trouble. Yeah, I guess we're going to be the canaries down the mine shaft again. So if Victoria can lock down for a third time, then the UK can as well. <laughs> now, last question I've got for you. So research that we've been doing at the IPA this year is basically showing that Australia's in this K-shaped recession where obviously there was going to be a recession because of all the job losses and all the economic lost economic output. But what it's really being shown is that private sector jobs and wages are falling dramatically, but public sector, uh, you know, people in the technocratic elite are not only keeping their jobs, but they're actually expanding them. And I was just wondering, is this the similar experience that the UK is going through right now, where there are insulated people from the worst of the economic effects? Absolutely. There are people insulated from the worst effects, unquestionably. And um, here too, it often splits along public sector, private sector lines too. So um, public sector employees are incredibly well protected, um, whereas a lot of private sector employees are you know, they've been on furlough, so 80% of their wages have been paid for a period of time, but it's becoming increasingly clear that that is just a, sus a suspended form of unemployment. And once furlough ends, these people won't have jobs. That's the way it is. And, and they can't look for new jobs because who's hiring in a lockdown? No one. So yes, there are some people who are insulated and, and it tends to be a lot of public sector em employees um, people who are a bit more well-off, people who are a bit more comfortable, um, the expert class, the media class as well. You know, it's it's not really that surprising that these people are very favourable towards lockdowns because for some of them, it's kind of a nice experiment, right? You stay at home for a few months, your house is quite nice, you get to spend time with your kids, you can go in your garden, you can still work on your computer, you can get your food delivered. It's, you know, it's it's not that much of a burden. But for other people who either have to carry on working, you know, delivering food to these well-off people, stocking supermarket shelves, emptying the bins, etc. They have to carry on working or other people just lose their jobs. So there is a real divide here between those people who, for whom lockdown is fine and even possibly interesting and those people for whom lockdown is terrible. I think just briefly bringing it back to the US, I think one of the most fascinating statistics from the US was the 
the kind of employees who donated money to Biden and the kind of employees who donated money to Trump. So if you look at the people who donated money to Biden, it's like people who work at university, banks, um, Silicon Valley, you know, pretty high flying jobs. And if you look at the kind of employees who donated to Trump, it's truck drivers, builders, cops, um, you know, people further down the scale. So I have this vision of the US where you had all these kind of upper middle class people hiding at home during the lockdowns and tweeting about how terrible Trump is. Whereas all the people who carried on working, delivering things to those people's houses, making their food, et cetera, et cetera, um, they tended to vote for Trump. So this isn't really, this is, a, I think, a, a very interesting divide that's going to emerge in Western countries over the next few months. The divide between the kind of lockdown elite and ordinary people who will be saying, listen, we want to work. We want to keep the economy going. We want to have a healthy, prosperous country. And I think that clash is going to be one of the most interesting in the next few months. Well, we'd love to talk all night, Brendan, but unfortunately, he's got another thing to go to in a few minutes. Editor of Spiked, Brendan O'Neill, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks, guys. Okay, thank you too, Brendan O'Neill. Wonderful, as always, to talk to him. Go check out Spiked if you haven't already. It is the best of all websites. Uh, Pete, let's run through some stories that made us laugh this week. Far away, you start off. Okay, Anne Hathaway was in a flick called Witches, which came out this year. Uh, it was based on a Roald Dahl novel from 1983, James, which is not that relevant. Anyway, the point is, she in this movie, the witches had three fingers on each hand and no toes. And that was all fine until comedian Alex Brooker, who you might know, James, because you love that kind of stuff. No, uh, said, no said idea that, that is. Okay, well, there you go. Sorry. I thought Bad that was a question make... rather than just a, like, a bit of paprika in the sentence. But continue, sorry. <laughs> I was, I was curious to know if you knew who they were. Anyway, he's, he or she, I don't know if it's a man or a woman, said we should be scared of people with missing... No, we sh- it sends the message to children that we should be scared of people with missing fingers. Now, as a result, Anne Hathaway, who's the star of Witches, uh, had to issue an apology on Instagram. She said, as someone who really believes in inclusivity and really, really detests cruelty, I owe you all an apology for the pain caused. I did not collect, collect connect limb difference with the GHW, which is the her character in the film, uh, when the look of the character was brought to me. If I had, I assure you, this would never have happened. James, have you ever heard of limb difference before? I have not. Uh, but what, I, what I've noticed here is that Anne Hathaway for, uh, is apologising for, for her betrayal, uh, portrayal of a witch to the disability community, but she's not apologising to the witch community. And so I just think her silence on this is deafening. I think Anne Hathaway has, dis, uh, has uh, offended a large portion of our community and one with supernatural powers. So I don't know if that's good for Anne Hathaway's long-term health either. It is. I mean, there are people out there who, you know, do seances and stuff and, yeah. you know, are into that kind of like, you know, I'm pretty sure my um, my cousins and stuff are into that. They're sort of, you know, hippies from Byron. So um, anyway, that's a bit of a segue. Uh, <laughs> the Sorry, other thing... Pete, uh, just adding that to the official minutes. Uh, producer Saul, if you could add that to your minutes as well so we don't miss it. But Pete has... Uh, hippie cousins. I remember we did a seance when we were little and I was a bit scared because I didn't know if it was real or not. Anyway, so they might be offended. Uh, and the other thing is that the witches originally had claws in the book. That's what people forget. So I don't know why they'd changed it to three fingers and no toes. Claws are better than that. That's mm. my other point. Is that not in the... I'm, I'm not familiar with the book or the movie. In the book they had claws, but in the movie they, they changed the claws to three fingers. Mm. So they've gone out of their way to offend this group. Interesting. Yeah. 
Yeah. I, I, so, that's just that's just hateful. Uh, yeah. All right, I've got a story here. So this one might have been like in uh, in a lot of brave statements about journalists coming out of the oh. woodwork after four years of being extremely well paid to criticize Donald Trump. I mean, I can't imagine how brutal it must have been for people. Uh, this one might have been my favorite. So this guy, David Korn, who is an MSNBC analyst and the DC bureau chief of Mother Jones, 904,000 followers on Twitter, so, you know, a bit of a big fish. But anyway, what he tweeted out as a self-congratulations was, uh, was the following. When Trump was elected, I decided I'd only wear black ties. It was a personal and private act of mourning. I didn't say anything about it, and almost no one noticed over the past four years. Today, and it's this heroic photo of him wearing a grey tie. A new dawn. Would you have said that was grey? I thought it was more mustardy. Uh, we'll go with mustardy. I'm not good with this kind of stuff. It- but anyway, Pete, a new dawn. <laughs> it is there is one day school children not just in america but all around the world will be told about what's his name david corn and the sacrifices he made for four years um imagine sticking with that for four years dude that, the like, funniest sorry the funniest sentence is almost no one noticed <laughs> it's like, like how irrelevant are you to people's lives <laughs> that you're doing a protest every day for four years and then, yeah. like, on the day of the inauguration, it's like, ah, ah, see my new tie? And they're like, yeah. what's going on? He's like, ah, my protest is over. And they're like, what, protest? Yeah. And and it just, like, every day, like, it's going to be so good when I tweet this. It's going to be so good when I tweet this for four years and then get absolutely nailed on Twitter for being, obviously, you know, a bit of an idiot. And yeah. I so just to that point about mustard, I thought... It, it definitely stuck struck out to me and a few of the commenters on Twitter that it was it was a pretty nondescript, pasty mustard tie that he eventually broke the shackles of freedom with. Like, surely you go for something, you know, out there or colourful or vibrant. It well, was just a, a blue. Surely you just go blue. You know, if, if Georgia can turn blue, surely your tie game can turn blue. Get a blue one. That's fine as well. And for people underneath it, actually, this is, doesn't seem like it was that uncommon. Some people underneath it were bagging him, but some people underneath it were like, I haven't worn red for four years and on the inauguration I'm going to wear red so it's been going on and people had their US flags upside down they're now going to turn them the right way up so there we go I don't know just the whole idea that no one noticed your personal protest for four years and you still go well I'm going to tweet it out (laughs) and to think and to think like this doesn't make me sound like the biggest flog of all time is also a mind-bogglingly crazy anyway a new dawn a new dawn what a what a brave and uh terrific journalist uh all right i've got another story here i want to go through so potentially everyone's favorite subplot of the election was the fact that nevada just does not give a crap about about Mm. you it doesn't give a crap about who won the election and it will not change its ways so it just seemed to be this case where on the night of the election uh nevada would just like yeah we've counted some of the votes but i mean we're rostered on till nine and it's getting late and I've got a dinner reservation. So I'm ahead and uh, we'll come back in a couple of days time. We'll figure out, figure out who won. And like, I, the whole country is just going like, but, but we don't know who won on the night of the election. The thing that we were all hoping to have known. And they're like, yeah, no, just not going to do it. Just, just come yeah. back in a few days. I mean, I love it. I like only in America could a state not be forced into changing how late they stay with the count. They'll just go, you know what? This is how we do things in Nevada. You guys are going to have to wait. Well, I'm surprised it was Nevada because Nevada seems to me, you know, like you can do whatever you want. We've got the gambling. It's, a, it's yeah. America's playground. I assume they would just go all night till they did it. But what I... Yeah, if it... Sorry, you go. 
I was going to say, if any state would have the technology to count things very quickly, you'd think yeah. it was the one with all the casinos. Just yeah, exactly right. Uh, and so, but Jennifer A. Russell, Secretary of State spokeswoman, she said, "We told everyone, we told everyone early on that results would take." take at least 10 days and that's just like the air of the supplier someone at like some business has ordered something too late and now they're ringing back every day where is it where is it and they said listen mate <laughs> we said it was going to be 10 days it'll yeah. take as long as it takes so, <laughs> but, just, but the difference is the supplier didn't leave it till late like everyone knew it's the first november hey in, sorry the first first tuesday in november <laughs> they said it would take 10 days mate they said it would take 10 days. It takes as long as it takes. So anyway, Nevada will get there. It's, not, it's still going, isn't it? Uh, yeah, I think they've declared it for Biden. I think the lead is just big enough, but it, it, I don't think it's going to have a huge effect on the election. But on the night of when there were just five states up for grabs in Philadelphia, he's like, yeah, we're calling it. And Nevada's like, yeah, come back in a few days. Yeah. Just Check out, there's lots of funny scenes. names. All right. Uh, last one I'm going to talk about. Uh, oh, last one of the great. show. So we previewed this at the start. Actually, Pete, you were looking forward to it. So do you want to set it mm. up for us? Okay, sure. So, so over the weekend, the, the Trump uh, team had a um, had a press conference, which Trump originally tweeted out was at the Four Seasons in Philadelphia. He then deleted that tweet, which doesn't happen that often, uh, and retweeted again that actually the um, the press conference was not at the Four Seasons Philadelphia. It was at Four Seasons Landscaping in Philadelphia. Which is a as it as it sounds like is a lance just a, a normal random landscaping business in the suburbs of Philadelphia. On one side of it is a crematorium, and on the other side of it is and I want to get the name of this place right because it's really important. Fantasy Island Adult Books. So that's where the leader of the free world. He wasn't actually there. It was Rudy Giuliani, but it was his team had a fresh, had a, had a press conference. That's their element. It's that's where they made their last stand, and I want to unpack so much more of this, James. But the first thing I want to ask you is: Did you think this is a mistake, or was this deliberate? I surely it's a mistake. I mean, it, like the campaign team's not saying anything, uh, and apparently it was like the fact that it's close to a freeway <laughs> was the reason they booked it. But I mean, that's clearly someone is like got told book the Four Seasons, and they googled yeah. and didn't check it close enough, and they're like, well. How do we feel? I mean, it is a big outdoors area, which is COVID safe, and there'll be a lot of parking, so people can get there. How do we feel about the landscaping business? Yeah, small business, Trump's America. I, I, so some people have been suggesting the people at the landscaping business answered the phone, knew that they'd stuffed up, but, but tried to trick them. I just reckon they went, leader of the free world wants to have a press conference here. Good advertising. Re- of, of yeah, course. Our, and our sides are going to be around. Yeah, yeah, of course, of course they would be. So I just, I just felt like that. And they, I liked their statement. They said, uh, "What did they say?" They said, uh, "So, so the the thing about this is all the businesses weighing in. We strongly believe in America and in democracy. We hope that our fellow Americans can join together and support all local small businesses during this time." Uh, they then tried to flog some T-shirts and at the end wrote, "Go birds." So. They kind of weighed in. They thought like, you know, the world needs to hear from Four Seasons Landscaping about the yep. state of democracy. And their allegiance um, to the Philadelphia Eagles. You always got to right. put it in. And that is exactly right. And the, my, the other guy, Fantasy Island Adult Books, Zarif Jacob, he also weighed in. So he got, so they got, you know, rang up, what's going on here, mate? He goes, he lost. He knows he lost. <laughs> so Donald Trump, Zarif Jacob, I just love that all these business owners we're just completely ready to like give their soundbite for democracy and the state of democracy in America. And, you know, 
So Rave Jacob is called it. This is why America is just the best. Like only in America can you start off the day just like opening the door to your like your small business landscaping. This is just going to be a normal day. And by the end, you are a tourist mecca for years to come. (laughs) This is, this is the spot. This is it. Land of the free, isn't it? You know, home of the brave. Anyone can do it, mate. It's great. So, and and it wasn't a surprise to Sarif Jacob that he was being asked about the state of American democracy. That's what I think. There's something in this. Yeah. Just jumps, jumps like it's like finally they've turned to me like i've been yeah. i've been having these opinions and i'm gonna get them out all right uh my question for you pete though is yeah. i do like the idea that the trump campaign marks its last flag of like we will be contesting the results of this election outside four seasons total landscaping instead of the four seasons hotel sorry like i don't know i'm just spitballing here but where would you have your peter gregory's last stand like this is this is the last place that I will mount my claim when people eventually have enough evidence against you for all of the nefarious things you get up to. Where are you having your last stand? Well, James, I've been wrestling this with this for a couple of days. Uh, it's been keeping me up at night. And the thing that I can't get away from is I want to have my last stand at the home of cricket, Hayes Paddock East Q, where the mighty Deaners play. I want the world's media to I could be have camped done that out the so <laughs> like, You could have asked me. I would have been like, yeah, Hayes Paddock. <laughs> yeah, well... Like, you wouldn't even pa- finish the sentence before I said, Hayes Paddock. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I, I, I don't claim to be under, uh, an unpredictable character, but, you know, we've got the Patrick Gregory Beer Garden, which is my brother's beer garden that he... The patch of grass the council allows us to drink on after Pat negotiated that with the council for about six years. We've got the Hayshed Cafe, which is the name of our cafe, and I just would love to see the world's media listen to my statement and then... Have some frothies in the sheds. You'd yeah, be- and just watch a bit of local cricket. Always a bit of fun. Nothing better. You know, Nothing it's better. like almost illegal to not walk past local cricket and stop for at least three deliveries. Yeah. You know, and nothing ever happens. See how people are going. The one, when you're walking past, nothing ever happens. Anyway, no, mate, you've never walked past and they got a wicket. That's a rush. You're like, <laughs> I caused this. I caused this. Yeah, well, you know, I've, I've, I've played a lot of cricket and seen wickets and stuff, so I know how that works. But um, James, why don't you give us your... Last stand. Uh, just a haunted house. Know. Just a haunted house. Okay, talk me through it. I reckon it's going to deflect the attention from me because like, everyone's going to be like one ear on what I'm saying, but also one eye, like, am I going to see it? Am I going to see the ghost in the window? So like, that's kind of deflecting already, taking the pressure off. And then yeah. if things get a bit dicey and I am asked a few very forward questions about Fox News calling the campaign against me, I'll just retreat into the haunted house and people would be too scared to follow me to ask more questions. That sounds I think like it just a good I think it just works. Uh, I still don't think then, it's as effective as Fantasy Island, but it's not, not too bad. It wasn't Fantasy Island. It was Four Seasons Total Landscaping and I want the respect to put on their name. <laughs> nah, but like... <laughs> Who would have thought when they like... called it Four Seasons Total Landscaping? They're like, no one's ever get us, get us confused with a hotel. Like, maybe one call every six months, can we reserve a room? Then it's like, oh, can we reserve your car park for the one of the biggest press conferences of the year? <laughs> the opportunity we've been waiting for. Yeah. Right, that that is... No, I've got nothing. You go. I'm so looking forward to being back in the studio. It can't be too far away, <laughs> surely. I'm so sick of... Nah, mate, you go. Nah, mate, you go. All right, that yeah. is it for the show this week. Thank you to Brendan O'Neill. As always, just what an absolutely awesome interview guest. Uh... Thanks for listening to the show. If you like it, make sure you're leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. We're available wherever people get their podcasts. So if you do have friends and family, you reckon are going to like the show. Uh, just wherever they listen to podcasts, they can find us there. And if you get the, get them to listen to it, that'd be great. 
If you like our show, IPA has got a whole bunch of different podcasts which you should be listening to. Looking Forward podcast, that is Scott Hargraves and Dr. Chris Berg. They they go big brain. Where Pete and I go, Joe Biden's old, they talk about Joe Biden's future policy positions. So if you do want some big brain conversations, head on over to Looking Forward. Always good chats. Uh, if you're one of our you know university, high school-aged people, make sure you listen to Viral Banter as well. A bunch of our Generation Liberty campus coordinators. Uh, sorry, Generation Liberty coordinators. Uh, who, you know, they're at university now. They're talking about the big issues as they occur to uh, young people. So that's always a good chat. Five Favorite Books, we've got a bunch of episodes coming out in the near future, which we're looking forward to. Um, what am I missing? Pete, help me out here. Uh, great books, did you say that? Great. Yeah, so we got stuff back in the vault. Australia's Future, John Roskam and Andrew uh, and Tony Abbott talking about the Australian way of life and great books of literature with John Roskam and Andrew Bolt. Just talking about books. Good chat. You what can hear me on that what, one as well. Very nice. What I wasn't told about socialism, that new video about well, socialism, check it out. Yeah, that's that's your wheelhouse, Pete, so I'll let you do the plug-in for that. But uh, yeah, we'll see you guys next week. See ya. See ya.